Hello, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 3 of Bad Gays, a podcast about evil and complicated gay men in history. I'm Ben Miller, a writer, researcher, and member of the board of the Gay Museum in Berlin. And I'm Hugh Lemmy, a writer and author. Last week, we profiled Andrew Cunanan, the dark heart at the center of Evil Twink Energy. Who are we going to talk about this week, Hugh? Well, uh, before we start, I'd just like to read a little poem. It's called The Secret Sin. There is, they say, a certain occult sin that dwells in monasteries where one brother doth sometimes turn for comfort to another. Tis a peccadillo that they revel in. Then pardon me if my excuse is thin. My lance is not. Indeed, there is no other. Can cut, can cut so wide a swathe and so can smother an enemy in carnage. If you would win the day with me, but I must not forget you are the victor and the spoils are yours. Do with me as you will, and with my sword, that gallant shaft which even now I wet. But what is this? You've stolen all my stores. What matter? Drop compunction by the board. This, uh, that's a poem by today's subject. Uh, if you visit the Sistine Chapel in the Vatican, you'll find, um, as well as the famous ceiling, an enormous fresco painting of the Last Judgment, also painted by Michelangelo between 1533 and 1541. It's based around Dante's Inferno and features over 300 different figures. Below the triumphant Christ returning to earth, at his left foot kneels this muscular, ageing man who's bald with a large beard, which is St. Bartholomew. In his right hand he holds uh, a flensing knife, a curved knife used by whalers to remove blubber, and his left, in his left hand he grips what looks like a cloak, but on closer inspection you can make out um, two lifeless human arms, two legs and a face, and he's holding his own skin, hold, uh, flayed whole from his body. Uh. Except that the face of the man obviously isn't St. Bartholomew, and traditionally it was thought to be the face of today's subject. A satirist, a pornographer, a blackmailer, a poet, a playwright, the original Regina George of the Italian High Renaissance. <laughs> this is Pietro Aretino. Today many people suggest that that face is actually a self-portrait of Michelangelo, but it's not really hard to understand why for so long people thought that Michelangelo would seek a sort of pictorial revenge on, on Aretino. Pietro Aretino, having spent years trying to suck up to Michelangelo without any luck, had unleashed a public letter attacking Michelangelo's work on the Sistine Chapel. Uh, and the letter is really a triumph of a Mary Whitehouse-style sick filth prudishness. And here's like an, an excerpt from the letter, quote, The pagans, when they modelled a Diana, gave her clothes. When they made a naked Venus, hid the parts which are not shown with the hand of modesty. And here there comes a Christian who, because he rates art higher than faith, deems it a royal spectacle to portray martyrs and virgins in improper attitudes, to show men dragged down by their shame, before which houses of ill fame would shut the eyes in order not to see them. Your art would be at home in some voluptuous bagno, certainly not in the highest chapel of the world. Less criminal were it if you were an infidel than being a believer thus to sap the faith of others." Up to the present time, the splendour of such audacious marvels hath not gone unpunished, for their very super-excellence is the death of your good name. Restore them to repute by turning the indecent parts of the damned to flames, and those of the blessed to sunbeams. Or imitate the modesty of Florence, who hides your David's shame beneath some gilded leaves. And yet that statue is exposed upon a public square, not in a consecrated chapel. End quote. Didn't you say this guy was a pornographer? Well... Yeah, it would be one thing if we were dealing with a simple prude here, but we're not. 
this letter is an example of the amazing performative insincerity that Aretino was a complete master of. If being a sneaky little snake is an art form, Pietro Aretino is truly the Michelangelo of it. For while in this letter he's clutching his pearls at the sight of a little cock, in his own life and work, Aretino was, for lack of a better word, a total slut, and proud of it. He was perhaps the first gay essentialist, declaring himself, quote, a sodomite since birth. He has a good claim on being the inventor of what we might today call literary pornography. He was a ruthless exploiter of the vanity and hypocrisy of the rich. He was a bon viveur. He was an excellent writer. The English satirist Thomas Nash, the author of Pierce Penniless, called him, quote, one of the wittiest knaves that ever God made. His work still has the power to shock and publication of his sonnets was censored as obscene, censored as obscene in London as recently as 2008, Ooh. over 500 years after they were written. Judging by the three portraits of Aretino by Titian, he was also hot. So all oh, up, it's safe to say that he is one of my heroes. Hello. Aretino was born in 1492, the year that Columbus first landed in America and the last stronghold of Muslim power in Spain, the Emirate of Granada, fell to the Reconquista. It was the beginning of the Italian High Renaissance, which art historians date from about 1495 and it lasted for about 30 years. The Italian Renaissance was a period of extreme artistic and creative productivity in the city-states of northern Italy. In this period of just 30 years, a few Italian city-states saw the production of such artworks as Da Vinci's Last Supper, the Mona Lisa, Michelangelo's painting of the Sistine Chapel, his sculpture of David, Raphael's School of Athens, and Titian's Bacchus and Ariadne. And part of the reason for this explosion of creativity was that the various city-states were engaged in something like a cultural arms race part of an ecosystem of competition, commerce and war that made Renaissance Italy such an extraordinarily enriching, profitable and lethal place to be. Uh, patronage was part of that system, having its roots at the start of the Renaissance a century prior. Northern Italy was one of the uh, one of the most urban areas of the world at that time, and it was moving out of its feudal system and into an economic and political system that worked for and was run by commercial agents and merchants. Cities like Florence, Venice and Rome were beginning to get rich. So the Renaissance started in the 1300s, um, but in the late 1340s, a terrible bubonic plague that became known as the Black Death spread right across Europe. Its effects were near catastrophic for late medieval European society. The first boats carrying the disease to Europe were thought to have arrived in Sicily, Pisa and Genoa in 1347, and within three years the disease had ravaged Europe, killing up to 60% of its population. Jesus! Yeah, that's about 50 million people. And Holy in Italy, God. the toll was a lot worse, perhaps up to 80%, 85% of the population. 85% of the population mm. died? Yeah. Wow. But it did, however, have a very significant economic consequence. Because we're so many... <laughs> and a positive one. <laughs> this is crisis, crisis feudalism. This, is, this is, sounds like an economist article. Yeah. Um, because with so many of the laborers dead, the value of labor shot up, which allowed significantly better pay and conditions for previously impoverished uh, serfs and workers. And this helped create a sort of booming commercial economy and the amount of land that was also becoming free because so many people had died and new inheritances that weren't expected helped create new investment opportunities. So as a result, banking flourished, and especially in northern Italy and Florence. In fact, the oldest banks in the world that are still operating date from this period from Florence. 
um, and along with the development of double entry bookkeeping in Europe at the same time and um, the invention of movable type and the printing press, um, this allowed a huge surge of knowledge and wealth to be passed around the continent, which revolutionized education, philosophy and culture. Mm-hmm. And as a result of all this large banking, of all these large banking families, such as the Medici's and the Borgias, who we might know from HBO series. Um, well, they... I know them from Donizetti operas. Here, okay. but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> these are Google Joan Sutherland yeah, seeing the end of references. Lucrezia Borgia yeah. for the best drag show you'll ever see. But um, the Medici's and the Borgias sort of grew to prominence in this environment mm-hmm. and their power was not just economic, but also political and spiritual. The large families who ran the city-states competed to get their offspring chosen as cardinals and popes with all the benefits that that office brings. Intrigue, murder, corruption, war, shady dealings, incest, these were the mood music of Renaissance life. So into this world, our bad gay Pietro Aretino was born the son of a humble shoemaker named Luca del Tura in Arezzo, a city which had been sold into the Republic of Florence. Luca was another bad dad. Uh, He abandoned his family to start a probably more lucrative career in the militia as a mercenary. And Pietro never forgave him, and he renounced his surname Del Tura, and instead took the name Aretino, meaning from Arezzo. He was thrown out of school, aged 14, for a poem that was judged to be sacrilegious. So he travelled first to Perugia, um, where he was then thrown out as a result of, quote, an alteration made by him in a picture on a sacred subject. (laughs) Who knows what that is? Good girl, Pietro. Yeah. And then he went on to Rome where he got another job as a household servant and started to write, um, sort of write about being a servant and how much he didn't didn't enjoy it, basically. So but you're it, saying he was the first blogger? Yeah. <laughs> but he um, he was caught stealing a silver cup and so he was fired. As a result, he took a, a number of other, other odd jobs, probably a rent boy and a pimp for a while, um, a mule skinner and even a hangman's assistant. But he really came to prominence and made his name with a poem that he wrote when he was 24, following the death of Hanno, who was an elephant that was the favourite pet of the Medici Pope, Leo X. Leo X coming from the Medici family in Florence. Uh, Aretino published a poem satirising the Pope and his hangers-on that was written as the last will and testament of the elephant Hanno. In the poem, the elephant doles out his body parts to various church elders, including his bollocks to the Cardinal of Senegea, and his penis to cut the uh, Cardinal de Grazzi. <laughs> but luckily, Leo was a good-natured Pope, although almost certainly a corrupt one, and he was known in his time as a sodomite. Um, the pamphlet shot Aretino into public popularity, and it began his career as a satirist, producing poems that played on court gossip and sent up the Vatican and its hangers-on. Mm-hmm. Leo X either enjoyed the satire or more likely regarded that it was better to have such a wit on his team in these turbulent times. And as a result, Aretino was employed within the Vatican as a satirist. One modern source I read said it adhered to the old principle that it is better to have him inside the tent pissing out than outside the tent pissing in. (laughs) And this was like a really common theme in Aretino's career. His humour was so sharp that he essentially worked through literary blackmail, travelling around the city-states, many dukes and cardinals, and basically saying, uh, nice reputation you've got here would be terrible if something to happen to it. <laughs> His life in Rome was really good. He was earning money. He was brushing sol- shoulders with the rich and powerful. 
Um, the Medicis were his patrons, basically. And when Pope Leo died, followed shortly by a Dutch successor who then died within a year, um, a new Pope took the throne, Pope Clement the Seventh, who was previously known as Julio, Julio de Giuliano de Medici. Clement VII continued his cousin and adopted bro brother Leo's patronage of Aretino, and he used him to produce harsh and cruel poems that attacked his rivals for the papacy. He was also good friends in this time with um, the dashing Lodovico de' Medici, also known as Giovanni della Bandenere, who was a condottiere, or a mercenary captain. Apologies again to Italian speakers for my um, ham-fisted attempt at pronunciation. So he was this mercenary captain who was sort of a dashing sex symbol in the city-states at the time, and he was also a complete piece of shit. He committed his first murder aged 12, and a year later he raped a boy who was three years his senior. There is some suggestion that he and Aretino might have actually been lovers. Um, Lodovico de' Medici was certainly bisexual, and Aretino went to join him on campaign in wars against the city-states. But in 1526, he was shot in battle and had to have his leg amputated. Um, ten men were brought in to hold him down, and according to Aretino, who was actually there, he said, quote, Not even twenty, Giovanni, who said, smiling, could hold me. And he took a candle in his hand so that he could make light onto himself. I ran away, and shutting my ears, I heard only two voices, and then calling, and when I reached him, he told me, I am healed. And turning all around, he greatly rejoiced. But he wasn't healed, and he died of sepsis five days later. Anyway, at this point, Aretino made a decision that was to prove a turning point in his life. He wrote some dirty poems. This was well before this letter to Michelangelo, you know, so like he has, yeah, he has, um, he has form here. The painter, Giulio uh, Romano, had been employed by Federico, this Federico Il Gonzago, who was the Duke of Mantua to decorate his new summer palace, the Palazzo del Te. And part of this commission was a series of private erotic paintings. But the famous engraver of paintings, Marcantonio Raimondi, copied them for a new erotic publication called Il Modi, or The Ways. And the book is kind of like a Renaissance Kama Sutra. It's a series of images of different sexual positions and poses. However, Pope Clement objected, as they had, unlike Romano's paintings, been for publication, not for private use. I.e., they weren't just for the rich, and they were going to be shared around. Mm. Um, it's only a problem if someone can see it. Yeah. So Ryan Mundy was imprisoned, but Aretino, who had visited the engraver while he was working on the pieces and liked them, intervened on his behalf with Pope Clement, and he got him freed. But never want to miss an opportunity, Aretino and Raimondi then republished the images, this time with a series of 16 sonnets, known as the Sonetti Lussuriosi, or Lustful Sonnets, um, which were written by Aretino. Mm -hmm. The pictures themselves, while of historical or mythical heterosexual couples, have more than something of the Tom of Finland about them. They're these bulging muscles on both the men and the women, <laughs> and like these proper meaty cocks. Not the, not the sort of idealised small cocks of antiquity. So, like, this was definitely pornography. Um, in his introduction to the Sonetti Lusoriosi, Aretino wrote, quote, Come view this, all you who like to fuck without being disturbed in that sweet enterprise. And with respect to hypocrites, 
I dedicate these lustful pieces to you, heedless of the scurvy strictures and asinine laws which forbid the eyes to see the very things that delight them most. Hmm. Which I think that's an admirable, admirable sentiment when you contrast it to his sort of later public letter to Michelangelo, which attacks the last last judgment as obscene. You can see why he's such a snake here, you know. Oh yeah. Anyway, it's hard to find a decent translation of the sonnets in English because the English are a nation of sexual hypocrites. But here's one example written as a dialogue, which most of his works were, between a he and a she. He. Let's fuck, my love, let's fuck, since all of us were born only to fuck. You adore the cock and I the cunt. The world would be nothing without this act. Hmm. If it were proper to fuck after death, I'd say let's fuck ourselves to death, and then we could fuck Adam and Eve, who died such a dishonourable death. She. <laughs> Truly, if those truants hadn't eaten that treacherous apple in the garden, lovers would long ago have quenched their lust. But let's stop chatting. Stick your cock in so that it reaches my heart. <laughs> and crush the soul that lives or dies issuing from the cock. He, he. Don't leave out my balls. Take them inside the cunt. Those witnesses of every extreme pleasure. <laughs> Do you like that one? I'll give you a I'll give you another one, Ben. Oh, please, you. This is Sonnet 11. I'm beginning to get very warm. Yeah. Yeah, it's hot in here, isn't it? It is. It is. Uh, this is Sonnet 11. Open your eyes so I can get a good look of your fine ass with your cunt well in view. <laughs> An ass that makes paradise perfection. A cunt that melts hearts with passion. As I gaze longingly upon you, a sudden urge comes over me to kiss you. And I seem to myself more beautiful than Narcissus in the mirror that keeps my prick erect. We remembered to mark this one explicit on the on the RSS, right? <laughs> oh shameless she, oh shameless she, on the bed, on the ground and in bed. I can see you, whore. Get ready to defend yourself. I'm going to break you a rib or two. To which she replies, "Shit on you, pox-ridden old hag." <laughs> to enjoy this pluperfect pleasure, pleasure, I would jump in a well without a bucket. And you won't find a bee hungrier for flowers than I am for a noble prick. And without even trying, I come just from looking. Oh, bless. Yeah. Oh, bless. You won't be surprised to learn that the Pope was not into this poem. No. And as a result of this... Oh, that sounds just like <laughs> what we always used to read when I went to Mass with my grandparents. <laughs> as a result of the opprobrium that he faced, combined with an assassination attempt um, by uh, one of his victims, Bishop Giovanni Ghiberti, that led to him fleeing Rome for Venice, which was known at the time as a licentious anti-papal city, which makes you wonder why he hadn't moved there earlier. Aretino approvingly called the city the seat of all vices. Aretino defended himself by saying, why should I be ashamed to describe what nature was not ashamed to create? Um, part of the satire of Aretino's work revolves around the innovative way that he made women active rather than passive voices in his writing, although still clearly within a firmly misogynistic framework. Within the sonnets, it's been suggested that the women, like the women in the engravings, are perhaps more masculine than they might be. Um, as a result, they perform this role of being a man in drag almost. Um, and that speaks critically, or the, the, the women speak critically to male desire and to the sort of sodomitical homosocial tendencies within the church in particular and within Italian society more generally. These are sort of addressed to men. Mm-hmm. Uh, in his epilogue to the sonnets, he wrote, quote, These sonnets of yours dedicated to pricks in the service of asses and cunts, and that are made of asses, pricks and cunts, resemble you, dickheads. Hmm. 
In the book Shakespeare and the Italian Renaissance, Kia Ellum writes, quote, The male voice of the sonnets, adopting a radically and ironically anti-Petrarchan mode of praise for women, is nevertheless unmistakably misogynistic, reifying the female body as a multi-orifice vehicle for the expense of spirit and the display of masculine power. Male desire in the poems fetishizes both porta, uh, prick, oh no, cunt, and culo, ass, uh, but gives undisputed pride of place, as Raymond B. Waddington notes, to the ass, the culo. Hmm. In the world of these sonnets, the culo is the focal point, the centre of gravity. In Sonnet 11, it becomes a paradise, and again a mirror in which the man's, ne- man's desire is st- stimulated by seeing himself as more handsome than Narcissus. In one sense, Aretino is carrying on a dispute with the high humanist pornography and with the supporting cultures of court and church, all of which privilege male homosexuality. This introduces another aspect to the gender ambivalence of the poems. If the women are really men in naked drag, and if the recurrent choice of a sexual mode is sodomy, if I were a man, exclaims the woman in the closing line of seven of Sonnet 8, I wouldn't want cunt. <laughs> it follows that Aretino transforms the aggressive heterosexuality of the images into a primarily homoerotic literary event. End hmm. quote. Anyway, in Venice, Aretino went on to write a number of his well-known plays and books, including The Secret Life of Nuns and The School of Whoredom, which is their names, <laughs> their names as they're published <laughs> under today. Which um, the, the School of Whoredom, <laughs> yeah. Oh God. Which were published together at the time that. as. Um, Ragionamenti. Both books are satires on the vogue in the Renaissance for Neoplatonic dialogue, discussion between an educator and a student. In the first, an elder nun gives advice to a novice nun, and in the second, a madam to a young courtesan about the ways of the world. Both books feature actually the same two characters, Nana and Antonia, a mother and daughter. Which is interesting, I think. Obviously, comparison... Also, a nun... A nun who's a mother. Yeah. It's a contradiction in terms, I guess. Um, I think that was his point. Yeah. Anyway, obviously the comparisons are intended to be made between the two professions, but the women aren't actually the butt of the joke. Instead, the books are sort of satires on the vices and hypocrisies of well-to-do society of the time. But he also became a sort of terrible agony uncle for rich men wishing to indulge in vice. He knew the underworld. He knew how to navigate sex and relationships. And his advice was probably pretty good, but unfortunately for them, he was not someone of whom you should share your secrets. Um, he quote, kept... "Why would anyone have thought that he was? <laughs> Were they all stupid?" Anyway. He quote, "kept all that was famous in Italy in a kind of state of siege," according to Jacob Jacob Bur- Burkhart, um, and he blackmailed those who came for his advice by then threatening to reveal their problems. He regularly published books of his own private correspondence, which became a huge threat to the reputations of the aristocracy and royalty. In this period, he was given his nickname, Flagelo dei Principi, or the Scourge of Princes, hmm. which is a great, a great name. It is a great name. He was also a playwright, and in fact, his plays were really popular. He wrote five comedies between 1525 and 1546, all set amongst basically regular Italian life. Um, the best known of which were La Cortigiana, The Courtesan, which is a, a tale about courtesans in Rome, and which is a parody of an earlier work, work called Il Cortagiano by Baldessari Castiglioni. And it's a comedy of errors where a Sienese man arrives in Rome hoping to become a cardinal, but then realises that in order to win the woman of his dreams, he must become a courtier. 
but he's then duped by a man who professes to be able to train him and leads him on all sorts of hilarious garden paths. Hmm. His plays were actually quite influential, as were his letters. Um, they were popular around Europe. They reached England, first in Italian and then in translation. And his plays were published in London by John Wolfe in 1588. They were said to be numerous theatrical innovations uh, around comedy within his work, which were picked up by Shakespeare, not least in the Comedy of Errors. And also a lot of the settings of Shakespeare's Italian plays seem to be around Aretino's world. Indeed, the only Renaissance artist that Shakespeare ever references in A Winter's Tale is Aretino's good friend and collaborator, uh, Giulio Romano, of hmm. naughty paintings fame. The same tendencies for portraying an entirely homosocial world are found within his plays too. In Il, Mariscal, Il Mariscalco, which is the stable master, the only, only female character in the entire play, who's the bride, is soon found out actually to be a man to the relief of her husband. <laughs> Uh, Aretino wrote in the prologue to the play, quote, The magnanimous Duke of Mantia, paragon of goodness and generosity in our terrible century, having in his service a stable master who is as adverse to women as usurers are to spending, orders a joke to be played on him, through which the stable master is made to take a wife with a dowry of 4,000 scudi, and having been dragged to the home of the noble Count Nicola, a place of virtue and of refuge for the virtuous, is forced to marry a boy disguised as a girl. When the deception is revealed, the worthy man is happier in finding a male than he would have been wretched in finding a woman. End quote. <laughs> in Venice, Aretino lived a successful life. He was said to have had a palazzo on the Grand Canal, in which he hung a portrait of the Virgin Mary, painted by Vasari, but he told visitors that it was his mother. Uh, Tintoretto painted his apartment ceiling, and he became really good friends with the Venetian artist Titian, who painted him a number of times, both as portraits, but he also used him as a model for his paintings, uh, including in the religious painting Ecce Homo, where Aretino was the model for Pontius Pilate, bringing Christ forth towards the judgment of the crowds, hmm. which I feel Aretino must have loved. Ecce Homo, indeed. Yeah. Um... <laughs> From Titian's paintings, we learned that Aretino in his prime was also a hot Renaissance daddy bear with really great legs. You can look up some of his paintings. Hello. Um, together, they became the centre of a social circle as well as collaborators. Aretino, Aretino was interested in the dialogic relationship between image and text and would reproduce word portraits that accompanied Titian's paintings. He also continued his practice of poetic blackmail. Charles V, the Holy Roman Empire and the King of Spain, was fighting a vicious series of wars with his arch-nemesis, Francis I of France. Charles decided to patronise Aretino, commissioning from him poems that attacked and vilified his enemy Francis, and Aretino took the job. But it didn't stop him also taking a similar commission from Francis to produce verse that attacked Charles. It was said uh, that he, quote, laid half of Europe under contribution. He was offered a knighthood, but without a pension to accompany it, and so he refused it, saying, quote, A knighthood without revenue is like a wall without forbidden signs. Everybody commits nuisances there. <laughs> when he met Charles in person, he was greeted like a celebrity. Charles told him, Every gentleman in Spain knows all your writings. They read everything of yours as fast as it is printed. Uh, he complained of not really getting much time alone, writing in a letter, to me come Turks, Jews, Indians, French, Germans and Spaniards, and then think of what our own Italians do to me. 
and the smaller fry I do not speak. But I tell you, it would be an easier thing to break your, uh, your devotion to the emperor than to find me for a moment alone, and without a throng of soldiers, scholars, friars, and priests about me, from which it would appear that I have become the oracle of truth, since that everyone comes to me to tell me the wrong that has been done to them by this prince and that prelate, and so I am the secretary of the world. End quote. Um, I like him because he wasn't an academic. His work lay in the language of the street and the tavern and the brothel, which is what made his writing so powerful at the time and also kind of makes it a bit obscure now. In another letter to a young writer who had sent him his work, asking him his thoughts on it and on fame and fortune in general, he replied, quote, And since in the letter which accompanied them you have been requested to ask me what fame and ambition are, I, my son, will reply that I am not the Drago man of philosophy, nor Aristotle's secretary. And so I will simple, simply say that to me, fame is the stepmother of death, and ambition the excrement of glory. I hope mm. you are well. He was also known to be fantastically generous to the poor. He had 22 women living in his house at one time, which people thought was a harem, but actually they weren't lovers, they were nursemaids to abandon children that he'd taken in. He was accused of sodomy by a Venetian nobleman and had to flee the city, as the punishment would have been death, but his friends persuaded the court to drop the charges, and he returned in triumph to welcoming crowds of fans. And there's actually a fantastic picture from about 300 years later by Angra of Charles V's ambassador attempting to bribe Aretino not to write about his catastrophic invasion of Algiers. Hmm. Aretino is laying back in his chair, his sort of eyes rolling into his head, holding a gold chain the ambassador's given him, seemingly saying, this is a trifling gift for so great a folly. Hmm. I think a good way to look at Aretino is that he was a gangster, where his weapon was the printed word, which he used like a stiletto knife to run through the reputations of his opponents. On October 21st, 1556, Aretino was drinking with friends in a tavern in the Republic of Venice. A friend told him a dirty joke, the punchline of which was said to involve his sister and her working in a brothel. Aretino burst out laughing, collapsing to the floor in hysterics, and he literally died laughing. He was 64 years old. He was buried in the church of St. Luca in Venice, and on his gravestone was the epitaph. Here lies the Tuscan poet Aretino, who evil spoke of everyone but God, giving us his excuse, I never knew him. Bah! <laughs> Oh, that's wonderful, Hugh. What a wonderful story and wonderfully told. Uh, thank you so much for that. So we've been totally overwhelmed by the success of the show so far. Thank you so much to all of you for listening, but a big special thank you goes out to all of our Patreon donors. Yeah, so far you've funded a second season and an ongoing series of special episodes, and you've really helped us to improve our audio quality. But there is a lot more that we'd like to do, uh, and we're not sponsored by anyone. We're not backed by any media company. We make the show for you, hopefully soon with more episodes, more interviews, and you let us know that you appreciate the show by giving what you can. So now's the time we awkwardly ask for money. So, to support the show, visit patreon.com slash badgazepod to sign up. We send you newsletters, zines, novels, and more depending on your level of support. Anything you can give is really appreciated, and if money's tight, a good review on iTunes or on your podcast app really, really helps us find new audiences. Thanks. That's patreon.com slash badgazepod. Thanks. So could we say that Aretino is kind of the first exemplar of B-gay do crimes? <laughs> no, absolutely not. There were loads of B-gay do crime guys beforehand. But um, maybe one of the first and, and most spectacular? Yeah, I think what's really impressive about Aretino is he 
saw the world as it was and gamed it. You know, he went from being um, the son of a, the abandoned son of a, of a shoemaker and ended up having a palazzo on the Grand Canal of Venice during the Italian High Renaissance. Like he saw the corruption of the world and thought, how do I, how do I game this? But he did it essentially through humour, through wit and through his writing. And um, uh, blackmail was just, I think, part of the game in those days, maybe. And it's a very kind of classically gay coded kind of a figure, isn't it? That person who's kind of... I mean, I, I, like I think of that scene at the end of The Line of Beauty by Alan Hollinghurst about very different kinds of gays in a very different kind of evil court. In this case, it's sort of the court of Margaret Thatcher, but um, where, where at the end, the that sort of Tory MP says to the gay guy, well, like, who even are you? Like, where did you come from? Why are you here? Like, why have you been around this whole time listening to us? Um, and makes this sort of homophobic accusation, like, well, this is what people like you do. You just find real families to, to like, burrow into because you don't have ones of your own. Um, and obviously that's homophobic bullshit, but what I mean to say is there is something, there is something kind of queer-coded or gay-coded about this kind of figure who um, kind of navigates through this very particular... Um, set of circumstances is kind of like extreme rootlessness like rootlessness and ruthlessness taken to the like highest possible degree yeah actually i hadn't really made that connection but now you mention it he does really fit into that 20th century model of gay male life that you have which is the class exile that you get across literary scenes really which is yeah like the the gay man who enters a different world and as a result of perhaps a gay sensibility regarding constant observation of manners and behaviour and uh, those sort of things can 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 navigate that world expertly. So I'm thinking of um, Charles Ryder in, um, I was about to say Danton Abbey, what do I mean? Brideshead Revisited. Hmm. And uh, Christopher Isherwood perhaps in um, Goodbye to Berlin. This, these, these, this, you get this recurrent figure of this and Hollinghurst is a, is a classic example of it, and even Garth Greenwell, for example, um, talking about moving, writing his books where you where the, um, the 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 figure the gay man is the audience surrogate because he's entering a world that he's forced to navigate alone, but his his gay sensibility of the observation of these social gestures makes him somehow more powerful. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. How did he manage to survive? I mean, it really does seem like one of the miracles here because I just can't believe they didn't get rid of this guy. I find it absolutely astonishing like that he must have been incredibly charismatic and he must have been um, a great laugh. He must have been somebody that you tolerated to a certain extent, you know, and then he he maybe got himself into a position where... I mean, I guess if your patron is the Pope, then you're pretty much protected for a while. But then, you know, he's slagging off the Pope as well. I don't know how he survived. I don't know how... I mean, to be fair, he was was stabbed a number of occasions. Um, He was lucky. Um, I guess he just had some sort of charm. He just had, yeah, this this great sense of humour that made everyone want to be around him. 
Um, he was some sort of party monster. Well, we've met a few of those. Um, how was it received, or was this just common at the time, um, that he was writing, on the one hand, um, you know, text to accompany work by Titian, who even at the time is this very kind of highly regarded um, sort of high painter, and then also these very, very body uh, sonnets. Was that normal? Was that not a problem? Was that remarked on? Was that just something he was able to get away with because of his charisma? I think maybe some of the divisions between high and low culture that we have developed in the 500 years since weren't quite so clear-cut at the time. Um, That all this was just being produced out of uh, Florentine society, Venetian society, Roman society, and wasn't and um, in the same way that, that I guess today that yeah the, today that you have this mixture of pornography and high art the whole time. I think you probably had it at the same time, no? Mm-hmm. Um, I would be interested to learn more, and I couldn't find out when I was researching it about the economics of his publishing and whether he actually was publishing the bawdy poems because they were going to make him a lot of money or whether he published the bawdy poems because he was a provocateur. He, he, like, he clearly enjoyed rubbing people the wrong way. Um, maybe that was part of it. Um, or whether he was just horny. Hmm. Does Aretino get taken up by any further generations of, of gays as a kind of either an inspiring figure or someone that people kind of call back to or call on in the way that like Michelangelo is called on and other folks or or not really because he's so kind of out there um well Shakespeare was clearly influenced by him there's there's books about his relationship with or Shakespeare's relationship with his poetry and playwright his playwriting mm-hmm. um but no he doesn't really get taken up in the 19th century because whereas Michelangelo for example or da Vinci were producing idealized beautiful forms of this platonic male desire um aretino in whether he was writing i mean we've made this distinction a lot but he he wasn't gay his sexuality his his behavior was bisexual at least he was married at some point but uh, anyway he was clearly he was clearly uh, his sexual desire the way he expressed it was not in these beautiful marble portraits of young boys with tiny penises he was into bawdy cocks and asses and cunts as you heard in the as you heard in the poems and therefore in the victorian era it couldn't be taken up in the same way as this um idealized pure form of platonic love which is how a lot of those early um homosexual pioneers maybe would have understood or, or what they were trying to push as this gay ideal you know he was about the tavern he was about the brothel he was about the really fleshy, meaty, liquidy <laughs> soup of human interactions. <laughs> he sounds fun. So, um, Hugh, Pietro Aretino, bad gay or not bad gay? I think you can tell from my opinions whether I think he was a bad gay or not. I just don't think he was. Like, blackmail is not an ethical form of behaviour that we here at Bad Gays endorse. But as a means of survival against the Medicis... Um, as a way to get through the world, as a, maybe as a form of um, informal sort of class politics, almost, you know, this 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 blackmail um, 
he made it work. He paid the rent. Well, actually, he didn't pay the rent. At one point, he was evicted from his grown palazzo. <laughs> but most of the time, he paid the rent. <laughs> um, and, and in terms of his dealings, uh, yeah, in terms of his dealings with um, with people who are under him, um, he seems actually pretty generous. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe, maybe we should recast him not as a dirty old man, but as a sort of um, sexy Robin Hood figure. I'll take it. Yeah, I mean, I think Aretino, from how you from how you've described him, is uh, you know the opposite of what we'd call a good gay. So maybe a bad gay in that sense, but uh, certainly sounds like a fun guy to spend a few nights with. Yeah, uh, and the reason I chose him to profile him on Podcast is because um, his reputation ever since pretty much he died, maybe fifty or sixty years after he died, around Shakespeare, Shakespeare's time, sixteen hundreds, has been of being bad. He was seen as a criminal and disgusting and a pervert and homosexual and licentious, amoral. And I just don't buy that reading of him, but I wanted to profile him and look further because I think he's such a fascinating figure of um, a sort of balls-to-the-wall fun guy in Renaissance Italy. Fantastic. So if people want to learn more about Pietro Aretino, where could they look you? Um, Well, there's a number of books. Um, Well, first of all, his books are still in print. I've read... The School of Whoredom and uh, the one about nuns. I'm sure you have. Yeah, yeah and they they are really really great. You know, and they're a little dense. Um, but yeah, they are. You know, he's got some good lines. Um, there's also um, Jacob Burkhart, who I referenced in the te- in the in the um, podcast, and he wrote a book called The Civilization of the Renaissance in Italy. That's mm-hmm. a Victorian book, but it actually has quite a lot of information on uh, Aretino. And likewise, the works of Aretino that are translated into English from the original Italian with a critical and biographical essay by Samuel Putnam. And then more generally um, around uh, the erotic in Renaissance, there's a book called Taking Positions on the Erotic in Renaissance Culture by Bette Talvaccia and Shakespeare in the Italian Renaissance, edited by Michelle Marapodi. I used all those sources within the podcast. Fantastic. Well, uh... Thanks so much for listening to the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Hugh Lemmy, or you can subscribe to my newsletter, which is at hugh.substack.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Ben Writes Things. And you can follow the show at Bad Gaze Pod. If you liked what you heard, please visit patreon.com slash badgazepod to donate, and or you can leave us a review on iTunes or your podcast provider to help us grow our audience. Thanks so much. See you next week. Bad. 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 Bad, 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 b